Now, if you have a Bible, if you would, turn to the book of Proverbs. Turn to the book of Proverbs. And uh, and I think we're in chapter 14 here, verse 30. So book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 30. I'm reading out of the NIV this morning because there's several verses that, you know, a long time ago memorized or have kind of been familiar with for years. And so it was more comfortable sticking with the NIV than reading out of the ESV. Uh, But Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 30. And I'm going to have them put it on the screen and just leave it here for like 10 minutes and just tattoo it into our minds. But it says this, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Uh, I've preached this sermon on envy in the last two weeks probably about 20 different times in my mind, 20 different ways. And I honestly believe this has been the most challenging sermon to figure out that I've had in a year or two. And the reason is this, uh, figuring out a sermon for me is figuring out something I'm really excited about or really bothered by. You know what I mean? Like how life should be and, and get really excited about it or how life shouldn't be or sin or something wrong or, or bad doctrine and, and be able to try and point out what's wrong with it. The hard thing about envy is envy is, in my mind, it's the cigarette of, of sin, it's the cigarettes of, of sin. It makes you sick to your stomach now, but not really, but it kills you in the long run. And we, we have phrases like green with envy. You know what I'm talking about? It's something when you, you got envy, it makes you sick right now, um, but it's not really bad. We don't really see it as bad. We don't really see it as like, the end of the world, it's just one cigarette. You know what I'm talking about? But you live a life of envy, and it'll kill you in the long run. And it's a really interesting thing about sin and guilt. If I came in and said a verse out of Proverbs, not about envy, but said, you know, a contentious wife is, you know, it's better to live under a leaky roof than with a contentious wife, says Solomon. Like, if I said that, I just did say it, but there's like a lot of wives that are kind of like, oh, I hit a little close to home. You know what I'm talking about? Or husbands, you know, fathers, don't be harsh. You know what I mean? Like, or don't embitter your kids. And if I said that, all of a sudden there's going to be some, some dudes that are like, oh, I hit a little close to home. My wife knows that yesterday, you know, and, I, you know, it's awkward. I know she's thinking about me right now. And, you know, that hit a little close to home. When I talk about envy, n- nobody's going to, f- like, get awkward feeling. You know what I'm talking about? Like, no one's going to be like, oh, my, this is, I, I don't, this is uncomfortable. I don't know how to sit in my seat. I feel like people are looking at me. Like, I feel like my spouse is probably thinking about me. I, I've got the guilt thing going, and I'm squirming in my seat. No one's going to squirm. It's... It's a really interesting thing. It's, it's something that 
over the long run will kill us. It's something that, that's called a sin, yet it's this tepid water kind of thing. It just doesn't really jump out at us. So I've kind of preached it all these different ways, but I'm like, how do you preach a sermon when everybody's kind of like, yeah, I don't know, I don't care. It's not that big of a deal, right? So I want to kind of step back and frame a couple things, and then we can walk into it here. The first thing is this. Um, We as a culture, by and large, don't care about sin. It's not just envy that we kind of shrug our shoulders at. We don't really think of sin as this horrendous, awful, horrible thing that should be avoided at all costs. It's not something that, that's in our minds as the thing that we want to avoid because it's wrong. It's an offense to God. We don't have a fear of sin, an aversion to sin. We don't have a fear of God to where sin would matter to us. I remember when I took over a college group in California, and the college group was rather small when I first uh, took it over, and one of the first weeks, there was a seminary guy, and he was preaching, and this guy's name was Robert, and he was a zealot. He was leading a campaign across the whole campus of Biola to get a, a one of the most favorite kind of professors kicked off of faculty because his doctrine was, was one notch over or something like that. This guy was leading, making his whole life about this kind of crusade on campus. And I mean, just really zealous personality. And then, you know, he was preaching. So I, I you know, took over this college group. I come in, it's very small. And I'm sitting there on a Sunday morning and this guy's preaching. And I've never seen anything like it. He was talking normal like this. And then on a dime he turned and started screaming at the top of his voice and like spits flying and he's got veins like popping out of his neck and he's like beating his bible and i'm i mean i'm i'm freaked out from just what what in the world's going on and you know there's two things that came from that one i never let that guy teach again um (laughs) there needs to be less weird christians in the world right i'm on a crusade need to be less weird Christians world. However, it gave me a picture of, um, if you could take away the weirdness, it gave me a picture of at least maybe what intensity against sin might look like from some crazy guy like Jeremiah. You know what I mean? Like maybe, you know, there's a, in a weird way, we see something about sin that we don't see when, when we're not veins popping out. And we, we kind of have to realize sin is this, it's a, it's a big deal. And we, we realize in our kind of tepid response to sin that we don't, what Kierkegaard called subjective truth, not postmodern version of subjective truth, but Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard said all truth of su- is subjective, meaning that truth put in propositional form, if I write it out in a sentence, it's a proposition, you know, that blankety blank, 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 you know, this doctrine, this statement, all sin is bad, it's a proposition on this piece of paper. And and we as Christians get so hung up with truth being propositional. What do you believe? Ah, you're wrong. You must belong to that school of thinking. Or, 
you know, oh, what do you believe? Oh, you're right. You're a good person because you believe the right proposition. And Kierkegaard, he was a Danish philosopher, Christian. He kind of came into a tepid culture in his day, and he challenged all that, and he kind of was the father of existentialism. He says, no, all truth is subjective. And what he meant by that was, if it's really true, it's gonna, if you really think it's true, believe it's true, and it becomes a part of your worldview, it's going to be embodied in you. It's going to be, um, inc- the word would be incarnational or incarnate. It's going to be lived out in you if you really believe it. Your life is going to manifest what you really take to be true. And so we can come in and talk about faith in a propositional form and say, yeah, the righteous should walk by faith. I totally believe that. I'm a good evangelical. I, I, and I'm, I believe in the Bible. And then you walk out and there's no faith at all in your life. It's nothing is about what God might do or could do. Everything is about fear-based, control-based, and self-based. There's not an ounce of faith in your life or trust. And, and you really look at that and you're like, you don't, you don't really believe that the righteous walk by faith. You're just giving mental assent to a proposition so that your peer group or your kind of cultural setting, you're in harmony with it. You see what I'm saying? And Kierkegaard was like, no, no, no. If you really believe it, you're going to embody that truth. And so when we come to sin, kind of in our day and age, how we're not very um, puritanical, we're not very whatever, we are laissez-faire with a lot of things, I think the first thing we have to realize is it's not just a sin issue, it's a truth issue. Do you really believe sin is bad? And it should be avoided at all costs. And that if we don't try to avoid sin, we're dishonoring God. I mean, do you really believe that? Do you go through your day and when you recognize sin, you flee from it rather than harmonizing with it? It says right in the book of Genesis at the beginning, I didn't mark it so I can't read it, so I'll try and recall from memory, but it, it's, it, was, it simply says this, sin is crouching at your door and you must master it or it will master you. Sin is crouching at your door and you must master it or it will master you. There's a certain sense of, of urgency coming on here that says, as you go through life, you have to be vigilant and active and aggressive, and you have to recognize that sin is out there, and it will own you. In other words, you submit to it when you harmonize your life with, with sin. And that if you look at it and you flee from sin, and you master it, then you are, are treating it correctly, and you're, you're living out truth the truth that sin is bad and it's offensive to God and that we don't want that, should not want that, and that if we're going to pursue God, we have to avoid sin. And so we have to, in some sense, be active and vigilant about sin if there's going to be truth in our life. If we care about truth, we also care about sin. Now, it begins to get kind of bigger and deeper than that. I said a number of weeks ago that all sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. Why? Why? Because if sin is crouching at your door and it seeks to master you, if you are mastered by sin, then who is your master? And if sin is your master, you, by the way, you didn't answer my question. It's a, it's, a, it's a little like when you go to lean on something and, and it falls and then you just fall over. It's like, it's, it's a little, 
doesn't satisfy when you don't get an answer to a rhetorical question. If, if sin, where was I? Like, who's your master when sin's your master? If sin's your master, then who's not your master? If sin is your master, if your life is being controlled by sin, if sin is dictating the pace, if sin is dictating your moods, if sin is dictating the health or unhealth of your relationships, if sin is dictating your appetites and what you really want as you're moving forward in life, if sin is mastering you, your body is in service to sin. Paul says, present your body as an instrument unto God for righteousness, that your body and the parts and the members of your body would be presented to God so that he could use it for his righteous purpose to bring about goodness. I mean, goodness is like a weak, crappy American word. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You need like James Earl Jones to say goodness with reverb. You know, but God is trying to bring about goodness. And you're in service to that. God then is your master. And because he's a good master, he's a good God, and we trust him. It's true when we say the righteous will walk by faith. We trust God. We think he's trustworthy, worthy of our trust. We put our lives in God's hands. So he is our master. That is worship. Worship meaning, um, again, from the Anglo-Saxon word, worth-ship, that he is worthy. He is wor- God is worthy to be exalted, to be above us, to be in control, to dictate our attitudes, our moods, our decisions, our appetites moving forward, the health or unhealth of our relationships, that God is the ability to coach and to speak into that, and to utilize us in bringing about the flourishing of his creation, his communities, and your own life. All sin, all sin is idolatry. It's choosing not God. It's not a kind of neutral third category off to the side. It's not a passive thing. It's not a... There's a great Rush song back in the day, uh, Fly By Night, you know, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. I can still picture listening to that song in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I don't know why, but it's, it's in my mind for just this moment if you're a Calvinist. Um, if, <laughs> if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Gospel according to Rush. There is no passive third category That's why Jesus is always talking about these kind of black and white categories, these either-ors. There is no hot or cold. There is no, like, serving mammon and then serving God. You'll you'll be mastered by one and not the other. There is no third category. You're either truly living in truth, embodying truth, incarnating truth by following God and trusting Him, or you make a decision not to follow and that's the story of the rich young ruler. He says, man, I can't, I can't really serve 
God with everything. I can't sell this. I can't give away this. I need to be in control. I need to steer this. I can't. I want a little. I want you, Jesus, to add to my life. Cool factor, whatever. But I, I can't really give you everything and make you my master. I've worked too hard to get all these things. Right? I, I've come to like them too much. So all sin is idolatry. So then we come to envy. And you're right back to where we started. Yeah, no, that's just not that bad. Really, Ken? I mean, envy, you know, deadly sin. You know, I mean, you don't go kill someone with envy. How's that, you know, like committing murder or stealing? We typically rate sin by the harm we cause to others. We typically rate sin by the harm we cause to others. Now, there are things where the harm is directly perceivable, okay? Somebody attacking somebody on the street leads to harm. Our society creates rules. We outlaw that. Cigarettes get created. Tobacco, it's good industry, all that. And we hand them out to our soldiers during World War II. All that, you know, everybody's smoking. It doesn't really harm anybody. Right? Back then, the idea was, why not? Whatever makes you feel good, it's your own choice, as long as you don't hurt anybody. Everything changed during the presidency of Bill Clinton. What changed with cigarettes? Anybody? Yeah. Studies began to show that it actually did harm other people. And the minute, that's the harm principle, by the way, the minute it harms other people, you don't have the choice any longer to do this, even, it makes, even if it makes you feel good, because it harms other people. It's wrong. So then we begin to legislate against cigarettes, right? So envy is the cigarette of sin. At, at first glance, at first blush, it doesn't harm anyone. So why not just be green with envy? It's your own, it's your own choice. However, when we look a little deeper, we realize that envy rots the bones. What, let's take that a little bit further. Here's the first thing. Justice is built on really a Western kind of Judeo-Christian idea that people do not simply have functional worth. Because the notion of justice is built on the idea that you don't just have functional worth. Meaning, if you stop functioning in a way that benefits society, you're not dispensable. It's not like your worth goes away when your function goes away. So whether you're old, or whether you have a handicap, or whether anything, your worth is inherent. It's not derivative. It's not functional. Does that make sense? Please help me. Get it? Okay. It's the, where does that come from? It comes from the image of God in you. You are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what your functional capability is. You are a human. You have dignity. You're made in the image of God. So justice then rides on top of that and says, we have to treat the poor. We have to treat the handicapped. We have to treat anyone who might have been uh, pushed to the margins and might not be a constructive part or a functional part or a whatever part of society, 
Um, however, they have worth and they should be treated with equality even with the rich person who has all the money in the world. Do you, do you get that? Envy, let me define it for you, is this. Envy is a feeling of discontent or covetousness. There's a faster way to say that. I just can't dig it out of my head right now. There's a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, success, possessions, etc. Envy is a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, success, possessions, etc. It's very close to jealousy. Jealousy brings in an aspect of rivalry, however. Um, like there's a third person almost and you're jealous because somebody else is getting what you want. But it's almost like a rivalry component. However, these, ver- these, these words are very synonymous. Now, if you take the Latin for envy... The, the kind of idea, the word picture here, it's the Latin word for upon, and then the Latin word for to see or, or to look. And so the idea is you're always looking upon somebody else's lot in life. You're always looking upon what they have, what, what, what's going on over there, what, what looks really alluring over there. You're always looking out there, and your heart goes with it, and you always go... Ah, I wish I had that too. It's not fair. If only I could have or take or, or get a portion of that person's life, I would, my life would be so much better. Does that get where envy is? So here's the interesting thing about envy. Envy is, is, is correlated to the idea of contentment. And if you're in envy or if you live in envy, then you're not content. If you're not content, you're saying, my lot in life, who I am, who God made me to be, who God values me as, is not sufficient. For it to be sufficient, it needs other things. Are you you following me? And you begin to live this way and become green with envy and green with envy long enough, it begins to rot your bones You are minimizing the worth and the value that is inherent in you because God is pleased with you and God loves you and God has established you and he knows your name and he knows the hair on your head and he's okay with everything that you have in your life at that moment for peace and and all things that he would choose. Even if you're sick, even if things are going wrong, your relationship with God is established. He has not forgotten you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to let you go. And when you say, that is not enough, my, my, my worth, my value, my life is not sufficient, you diminish in yourself the inherent worth that comes from being made in the image of God. You do an injustice to your own dignity and worth. If we take a class of people like World War II or or Rwanda and a genocide, you take these examples where it's really easy to kind of put a whole, look at what happened to a whole category of persons. And there's a sense in which they get scapegoated, they get marginalized, then they get dehumanized, and then they get stereotyped, and they, they really get put in a box of not having sufficient worth. And when they are devalued, 
it's a lot easier to perpetrate injustice against those people. It's why empathy and justice go hand in hand because empathy begins to put you in touch with the humanness of each individual. When you see a movie or you talk to a person or you begin to understand what's going on in their life and you share in their suffering, all of a sudden their, their, their image of God and their human worth just skyrocket right back to the top again. And your, your felt sense of injustice is not okay, it's not tolerable. It just goes right. So empathy helps with justice. And, and when empathy has gone and you begin to distance and devalue things, it's a lot easier to perpetrate injustice. When we devalue ourselves, our life that God gave us, the lot that he gave us in life, the, the looks he gave us, the giftedness he gave us, the personality he gave us, when we devalue the things that God has given us and act as if they have less value than what God sees them as, we do an injustice to ourselves. When we do an injustice to ourselves by proxy, we then do an injustice to the larger community that we're a part of. Do you understand how that works? This is a family. This is a body of believers. We are interconnected and interdependent. And have you ever seen the family where one person begins to feel so sorry for themselves that it makes the whole family dysfunctional? Because now everything is going to begin to revolve around that person, their sense of entitlement, and their victim complex because their life is not sufficient. They need everything else that they don't have. And even if they had half of it, they would find more that they need because it just becomes a virus and it makes us sick. Do you understand that? And that sickness in the middle of that, that family community creates unhealth in that family. The whole family becomes dysfunctional because of the one member that's dysfunctional. Likewise, a church. If we begin envying and, and, and looking and nobody's satisfied, nobody's content, and it's got this crazy thing, dynamic going on, it poisons the whole well. So when we devalue our own inherent worth and commit an injustice against ourselves, that begins to spread out and we do an injustice to the society because the debt we owe the society, the continuing debt to love one another, love, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, does not envy. So this community that we're supposed to love and build up in love and contribute to in love and serve in love, as we begin to envy, we don't love anymore. What should be flowing out stops flowing out and something poisonous begins to be sucked in this way. And so we poison the community. And then lastly, when we envy, we sin and commit an injustice against God. Why? Because we begin to then define our relationship with God around our questioning of God. When my daughter or one of my daughters gets it in her head, I got all girls, so it's all her in my family. It's not a gender statement at all. It's my family. It's all. When one of my daughters gets it in her head that something's not fair, this huge context of life 
the fabric of life of that day, of relationships, of everything that's going on that could be extremely good at Disneyland. The context could be extremely good. When one of my daughters gets it in her mind that something's not fair, all of the context is lost and reduced down to one thought, one emotion, one reality. Dad, it's not fair. Dad, I'm being victimized here. Dad, I should be entitled to that. Dad, it's not fair. Now, I don't know what it's like with sons, but if that goes long enough, you begin to see like foot stamping. I mean, the, I mean seriously, body language, like it's not fair. Okay? Everything gets reduced down to the questioning of the person who's seen as being responsible or in authority. If you're not content with your lot in life, if you don't live out the truth that the righteous will walk by faith, meaning that God's worthy of our trust, which means we need to trust him. And we don't always see the answer to trust until we walk down the road for a while. But unless we are living that truth out and trusting in God, okay, if we turn and flip and begin to envy and we realize, God, you made me this way. You, you put me into that family. You could have prevented these things. You could, you could help me win the lottery. You know, you could fix all my problems. When we begin to play that storyline long enough, our whole relationship with God gets reduced down to our calling him and his sovereignty into question. And while we're doing that, we are not living by faith and we are not recognizing and giving honor to God's wisdom and his goodness and his sovereign will. We're calling all of that into question. So we are not attributing to God what is true about God, which would happen in worship, we're actually putting God, what C.S. Lewis said, God in the dock. The dock was, is in England where the person on trial stands. So instead of God being exalted, the king, the judge up above, we take God, we put him in, in the, the chair, the dock, and we say, you're on trial. My life is not fair. Give an answer satisfactory uh, to my my context and my situation. This, God, is our relationship until you give me an answer. When we are living in envy, we reduce our relationship with God down to one single point. We, we miss the whole context. We miss the past. We miss the future. We reduce it down to here where we are dictating the terms to God. And if God does not obey our wishes and answer the question that we're asking, then he's worthy of our contempt. And we have just done the proverbial thing of putting God in a box and making our maker subservient to our Emotional immaturities. That is sin and an injustice to God. 
talks about this in Romans, the same thing I'm talking about here, diminishing worth, diminishing the value of the community, and then ultimately offending a holy and a righteous God. This, this progression that sin does, okay, it, it talks about it in Romans where Paul says, they traded their glory for shame. They were sons and daughters of God. They, they were in this relationship with God where God is taking care of them and, and they're able to be a part of, of, of goodness and bringing about what is right and this whole thing working and, and they traded that for shame. And that's what sin is. is it's trading your glory for shame. And so just like cigarettes, it's subtle at first, but then you get to Bill Clinton's presidency. And you realize that cigarettes harm people. And you realize what the meaning of the word is, is. Just kidding. Um, but envy, when we begin to look at it, is this thing that begins to eat out the core, the bones, the structure. And as your structure begins to decay, then so do the relationships around you because we are hopelessly tied into relational structures with other people and God. And so our justice, our righteousness, meaning right with God, right with others, begins to diminish and we trade our glory for shame as we become sickly. It's a really interesting thing please hear me now how enmeshed we are in this problem I know you guys know it but let's try to call it up sometimes things we know so familiar it's so familiar to us we it's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's too familiar I'm not really going to grapple with it but our culture used to do what was, was pretty much has always been recognized as good, which is hero worship. Hero worship. Meaning, when somebody becomes a hero, we exalt them and we want to emulate them. We admire them. It's almost, in some sense, the word envy can, can be used in a good way. Paul talks about wanting to make um, his own uh, group the Jews, envious so that they would come in. Envy can be used in a good way. If the end goal is a good one, a godly one, then in some sense, envy can drive what's right and what's true and what's good. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, hero worship was this idea that we would admire certain individuals and then want to emulate those individuals. And the heroes in a society were usually people who would distinguish themselves for virtue, for valor, for courage, for creativity, for tenacity and hard work, and I could go on. Does that make sense? Culture was framed around the idea of having heroes that everybody would look up to, and they were people who would distinguish themselves, and we would want to emulate those good characteristics, and so children would try and engender character and virtue in themselves. Now, it began to shift in the 20th century and if you trace it, there's a lot of different lines that come into it. One of them is in 1925, this dude began to be the first ever gossip columnist. Okay, 1925. Gossip columnist, the first dude ever start writing about people's divorces and their life and their goings-ons and, 
and their mistakes and their, you know, getting arrested and all that began in 1925. People magazine began in the mid-70s with the idea of focusing on and putting people's lives in focus. Fast forward to 2000, whatever. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, turns People Magazine into all of our lives. And so you see this progression of of reality kind of attention um, from 1925 and the beginning of that tendency and then People Magazine and then, you know, the 2000s, the advent of reality TV show and Facebook. And everything now is about attention devoid of context. Why are you a celebrity? Because you made a sex tape. Really? So why are you a celebrity? Because you're on that TV show. Why are you a celebrity? I don't know, because everyone else is running after you. You know, and you got a, a cool windswept forward haircut. You know, like, why are you a celebrity? Why? And the reason is, it doesn't matter why. The point is that you are. And I wish I had that. You're no better than me, but you got all that attention. Oh, I wish I had all that attention. Well, how do I get that attention? It has nothing to do with growing up character or virtue. i got to run around and figure out how to be in the spotlight. And, and so we're running around trying to figure out the celebrity thing, and it's all about looking upon envy and wanting to be in a position to where other people are looking upon And we now worship celebrities, not because of anything admirable, but just because of what they have that we want. And what's fascinating about this is, I mean, I I always think about it in the music industry. It used to be in the 70s, you had to be a killer rock band and you'd get signed. Now you have to be a killer rock band and look really good. You know, Steven Tyler would have never made it if, if he was coming about today. Oh, his mouth's too big. And he's not going to look good on a commercial, you know, next. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's all changed. Listen to what Daniel Borston says, the historian. He says this. He wrote a book about 30 years ago. So think about this. About 30 years ago called The Image. And he defined modern fame in, in these terms. He says, the hero was distinguished by his achievement. The celebrity by his image. The celebrity is a person well-known for his well-knownness. We are so enmeshed in a culture of envy. We are so enmeshed in a culture of envy, it eats our lunch and rots our bones. And if we don't get active, sin will master us. And we will begin to serve something other than God. I don't want that. I don't want it for me. I don't want it for my kids. Let me read out of James. Turn there if you would. James chapter 3 verse 13. I'm going to read a chunk here. 
Who is wise and understanding? Uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. You know, the thing that I've realized I think is the biggest subtle mistake we make as Christians, we think spirituality is something that just happens to you. We think spirituality is, I wish it would happen to me. I wish I would become spiritual. We make this mistake of being very passive and thinking spirituality just happens to us, not recognizing that spiritual growth or discipleship is something that we labor for and that we choose And so it's this idea of saying, I am going to commit myself and turn myself into this process of growing and weeding out the bad things in life and replacing it with the good things. And so all throughout Paul, we see this very active idea of spiritual growth. It says, don't think about things that don't lead to good places. Instead, think about things, noble things that are going to saturate your mind with goodness. And, And don't hang around with these kind of people. Hang around with these kind of people. And don't be caught in those areas. The idea is this. Envy begins with the eyes just like lust does. To look upon. And so you have to begin to say, look, I'm not going to look upon the thing that begins to rot my bones. I'm going to look upon something else. Let your mind dwell richly on the things of God. Hebrews says this. Fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's this whole idea of training your mind and training your eyes so that goodness will come in and begin to help grow you up. I, you know, Facebook is a crazy thing because we have these friends that purposely try to make us envy. Here I am in Hawaii. Here I am having a margarita in Hawaii. Here I am having a margarita in Hawaii with my hot wife. Ooh, I just bought a Lamborghini in Hawaii with my hot wife. You know what I mean? It's, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, <laughs> bye. It's, <laughs> and, and you know it's not true, too. That person's miserable. It's, if you want to find, if you want to, hey, if you want, if you really want to know the truth of what I'm saying, Go dig up from the 90s one of those Andre Agassi commercials about images everything and then get his biography and read it. Um, please, people. We're not playing around here. This is our faith. It's truth. It's God. It's worship. It's our own life and happiness. Image is not everything. Contentment is just saying, what you bring to me, God, I'll, I'll take And I'll rejoice. So this question, done with. So now what, God? We got the rest of the world. Let's talk and let's let's enjoy each other and let's converse. And tell me something I don't know. Show me something I should be looking at that will engender thanksgiving in my heart so that I can feel the joy and the happiness that comes from thanksgiving. 
God, show me how you really are trustworthy. Let me see those subtle little fingerprints that you put on things so that I know you're in control, so that I can worship you with a glad and sincere heart. This conversation, God, I want it. This childish behavior you're here with my foot stomping, please rescue me from this. Renew in me a right spirit. God, let me read the Psalms and let me just be reformed. Don't leave me to this childishness. I don't want it. I care about my happiness enough to not want this. I care about your happiness enough to want you to not want this. Happiness and and contentment and the absence of envy are tied together all throughout Scripture. Let's just close with this because we're about to run over time. Philippians, if you want to turn there, it's probably the most um, succinct of these, but you'll see them paired all throughout Scripture. So here you go in Philippians 4. And it's a famous passage where Philippians 4.4, Paul is, is just exuberant. And he's, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. And when you, when you don't feel satisfied with a sentence, what do you usually do? You repeat it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice, which is the word enjoy means to take in joy. Joy is happiness. To rejoice is to, is to be exuberant and to manifest your joy. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on and says, Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, emulate these things. Worship the right heroes. Focus your eyes on the right things. Let the right things come into you so that you can be stirred and filled with that. Whatever is good or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen, in me put into practice the God of peace peace will settle you so that you're not being rotted away by desire and envy for everyone and everything and anything out there that you don't have and then listen to how this ends this famous passage Paul says this verse 11 I'm not saying these things because I'm in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. When I first became a Christian, I used to use that verse on the treadmill. You know? Like minute 18, I'd be like flat out sprinting about to die. I can do all things. I can do all things. You know, it's not what this verse means. <laughs> I was watching a UFC fighter last night. Um, <laughs> whatever you think about that, okay? And he, has, he had this verse tattooed on him. You know, and I was joking with some dudes. I'm like, you know, I can, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, you know. Um, you know, as the life was getting choked out of that other dude, I was doing it in the strength of Christ, you know. 
Christ indwelt me as I felt the spirit of this man leave. You know, like, it's, it's not what this means. <laughs> a guy could be a great Christian. That's fine. It's not what the tattoo means. This verse means, this familiar verse means, no matter what your life is, whether it's filled with plenty, Andre Agassi, or want, you're sick, and you're in difficult situations, whether you have plenty, whether you have want, no matter where your starting point is, you can be content. Why? Because you've got great willpower. Because there's a lot of good self-help books out there. No. Just look at your tattoo. You can do it. No, seriously, you can, say it with me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What things? The struggles in your life? Really? Do you really believe that? Is it true? If I looked at your life, would I see that it's true? Ah, the truth. Only one person was willing to go there. This is, this is where we started. Truth is what we embody. This is where we started. Truth is what we embody. Please let there be a holy dissatisfaction in your belly about whatever degree truth is not living itself out in you. May we walk out of here with a desire to digest truth to be filled with truth, to be able to walk in truth. And where we're weak and where we stumble, that's when we reach out for the help that's there. We don't have to do this alone. So this verse we read in James, remember that? Don't do anything out of vain, conceit, or selfish ambition. A couple verses down, go home and read it. In James 4, James quotes Jeremiah and he says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Spirituality doesn't just happen to you. Choose God, pursue God, be hungry for God, run after God. God will draw near to you. He will be your help. He will be your assist in giving you the peace that allows you to be content and satisfied whether you have plenty or whether you have want. Brothers and sisters, let us not be consumed with envy. Let's pray, and, and then we're going to take the offering here in just a minute. Uh, God, I would want to just confess my own envy. It's a, it's a characteristic sin of my generation, of my own life, of all of our lives. It poisons the well. Instead of loving each other, we compete with each other. Instead of giving, we try to get. We rob ourselves of the worth. We trade our glory for shame. And in all of that, uh, we offend your glory. And instead of worship, we come at you with childishness and immaturity. And God, I pray that you would deliver us from that. Strengthen us today, each of us, in our own 
hearts and our stomachs, fortify us, give us a desire to actively, with determination, pursue you, knowing that if we do, you have promised that you will draw near to us, that you will be our comfort and our aid. Father, please, 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 please just come and deliver us and be our salvation. We pray that in Christ's name.